0: Thank you for listening to this lunchtime talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. In this live recording, Art Gallery curators Lee Robb and Russell Kelty introduce the work of the contemporary artist Chiharu Shiota in her first Australian public gallery survey. Chiharu Shiota, embody the exhibition that you're sitting in now, is the culmination, I think, of about six years, no oh, more than that, six years of endeavour on the Art Gallery's behalf. Uh, Chiharu Shiota, born in 1972 in Osaka, first visited the gallery in 2012 and she was on a Japan Foundation grant going around essentially Australia to all the major institutions um, as an up-and-coming artist and I was actually lucky enough to be here on hand and she gave a talk at the, in the Radford Auditorium, nobody knew her name nor could pronounce it, um, but everybody knew her work and they left, I can tell you from young, old, male, female small child, dog. Everybody who left that auditorium was just kind of totally profound, profoundly touched by what they had seen. And we made, it, uh, we made a concerted effort over six years, along with Lee, of course, Lee Robb, who co-curated this exhibition uh, and installation. We made a concerted effort to make sure that we brought Chiharu to the gallery, but we didn't want to simply bring one of her installations. We wanted to do something quite different to what had been done before. We actually wanted to encapsulate one of her exhibitions in an overview of her work, the diversity of her practice, look at her her practice in a more holistic way in hopes that we'd actually see something that would tell us more about her installation. And I think this exhibition, which Lee and I have curated along with Chiharu and her staff, really presents her work in a much different way than it has ever been presented before. And I think we feel quite lucky to have worked with her on this as well as the installation um, to really present Chiharu and set her in a history that nobody had ever done before and I think we're quite proud of that. Yeah?
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely I'm um, sorry I just thought we should also in oh, I should introduce you introduced right. me but um, this is uh, for all of you who haven't met this is my colleague Russell Kelty who's the associate curator of Asian art and um, I'm Lee Rob the curator of contemporary art and it's wonderful to have such a fulsome audience you probably can't even see us which makes it even more mysterious and enigmatic <laughs> so it means that we're completely on theme um, which is which is great um, I'd also just like to acknowledge that um, this lunchtime talk is taking place um, on uh, the land of the Ghana people and to pay our respects to elders past, present and in the future. Um, yeah, as, as Rusty said, you're, you're amidst one of the trilogy of uh, of projects that we've been working on with Chiharu Shiota. Um, hopefully you've all now had a chance to see um, to see uh, Absence Embodied, which is the incredible installation in Gallery 14 in the Melrose Wing, which um, has taken a month to complete. So uh, the in pretty much the entire month of August was spent um, with Chiharu two of her um, assistants from their studio in Berlin and um, ten of the AGSA, install- the incredible um, art gallery installation team toiling away on scaffolds, ladders and um, uh, pretty much every, every day for, um, for about three and a half weeks. Um, we received about eighteen hundred balls of wool, and um, and that spans about over two hundred and forty kilometres. So um, it uh, it gives you a sense of of the journey that um, that you know was undertaken to make it, but I guess also a sense of um, a, a sense of the the breadth and complexity of of, uh, of her practice to to distil it into something so unique and, and personal. So, um, as as Rusty was saying, um, when we were uh, part of the conversations with acquiring a work for the collection um, really uh, prompted the discussion around contextualising Chiharu Shioda's practice in Australia. Um, Chiharu Shioda uh, has been working and exhibiting since... About uh, 1992 was her first ever exhibition when she was a student in Kyoto Sika University. Um, And since then, she's become incredibly well known for her, her string installations um, of which now w- the Art Gallery of South Australia is um, the, the only public institution in the world that has a permanent installation that we have acquired for the collection. So it's quite a coup and we feel, feel very um, privileged that we we're able to work with Chiharu and that she has such an affection for the gallery and the collection that she wanted to come here and pursue this and, and, and return. Um, but we thought it was really important because uh, often Chiharu's installations are ephemeral. They will only stay up for a couple of months, three or four months, um, and then they'll, be, then they'll be taken down. She's been commissioned and um, invited to present at all the major biennials all over the world. She's shown in a huge amount of group and solo exhibitions um, through, throughout Europe and, and Japan predominantly um but um but there's rarely an occasion where all of where her work from her early performance um, to her video works, to her drawings, to her more discreet installations have um, have ever been brought together. So there were two reasons we wanted to do it. We wanted to show the breadth and complexity and the sort of pathos of Chiharu Shiota's um, incredible practice. But um, we, um, we also wanted to uh, link back to a formative moment in Chiharu Shioda's um, artistic career. One which saw her come to Canberra from Kyoto Siki University on a six-month exchange at the end of 1993 through to early 1994, and, um, and uh, where she was studying painting, and there was quite a transformative uh, moment that happened in Canberra, um, and I'm going to hand you to Rusty to talk about that.
0: That was some <laughs> fantastic framing. Thank you, co-curator. <laughs> um, so where does this journey begin, the journey that we're taking you on today. It actually begins in Kyoto. Uh, Kyoto, as I was saying before, was born in 1972 in Osaka, just a stone's throw away from the old imperial capital. She went to Kyoto Seika University from about 1992 to I think 1996. And somewhere in the middle there, 1993, 1994, she went on a semester exchange to Canberra, to ANU, to the painting department at ANU. And we actually spoke with some of the professors from that period and they talked about how wonderful the environment was at ANU and how good of a connection they had with Kyoto Seika University. Students were going back and forth and studying in both departments and she describes the going there as one intriguing because she moved from the confines and smallness of Japan to the great openness of Australia. She traveled around Australia and I think the kind of openness, the friendliness of the people the culture of Australia had quite a profound effect on her and I think it had an impact on her art. And she, she was in a bit of a, uh, a bit of a bind, actually, in her artistic career. She was feeling the restraints and constrictions of working only with oil paint on canvas with a brush. She felt like she couldn't adequately express her aesthetic or how she was feeling as a woman through this medium that had been largely Uh, you know, used by men from, you know, the 14th, 15th century onwards. And all of this was kind of culminating when she came to us to ANU, and she, as often does with her work, she had a very provocative dream one night where she imagined herself actually wrapped in a canvas and suffocated by oil paint. And she woke up from this dream and realized that something quite profound had shifted in her. She could no longer paint. She could no longer use that brush, canvas, and oil on paint, which she had studied in Kyoto Seika, and now was trying to study at ANU. And so instead of moving to sculpture or some other form of art, which now she has returned to later in her career, she actually decided to that she had to enact this performance to somehow liberate herself from the canvas to become painting, which is the title of these three archival photographs here, which document this performance, but I actually think a more appropriate title would be destroying painting. You know, she was a, a young woman who was frustrated with these, these confines of this media, this practice, who wanted to break out, define her sense of herself against the rest of the world and against painting. And you see it in some of these photographs. She's utterly defiant. And so what she did was with her boyfriend at the time, I believe, uh, Australian boyfriend who photographed her, she wrapped herself in the canvas that she was using, she dumped enamel paint on herself and enacted this performance, this kind of ritualized liberation, I think, of her ascetic self. And the, the after effects, the physical after effects, are quite profound. She actually had to cut off all her hair. Uh, the paint, the enamel paint, actually stuck within her fingernails and her skin for about six months. So this wasn't simply a moment, this actually lingered. And I think it's, it's quite symbolic, this actually lingered in her practice. You still see it today. So what we've dubbed the Canberra moment is quite profound and I think quite fitting as Lee was saying that this is the first place that she does uh, a a site installation which actually will remain up for about two to three or more years because this was really Australia and Canberra was a place of profound uh, insight and innovation for her. Now along with this amazing performance, she also um, did this One of her first string works which we could recognize today in uh, the gallery foyer at ANU which was a great vortex which she bound up locally found acorns in and then it stretched outside of the gallery onto the architecture of the actual building itself. And so her vision was grand it seems like from the very beginning and she had a vision of what her art could become and she enacted it at ANU in a way that she had not done before. And it's from this point forward, which the artist we now recognize really starts to take form. Um, when she returned to Japan after a stint at ANU in 1995, she did one performance slash installation called My Existence as a Physical Self. And it takes place, it took place in a Buddhist temple, Honenji, I think, in Kyoto. And what she did was she, she, she used this, this gallery, this space in a gallery temple, uh, in a temple. She covered the, the ground with ashes. Uh, and then she hung one single bit of her umbilical cord from the ceiling. Now it's quite obvious the connections with the uh, life cycle, as well as funerals, cremation is, is quite you know beautifully portrayed in the ashes. Um, but also there's a sense of transience. Now Chiharu herself has said she is not a Buddhist, but in Japan it's almost impossible not to be affected by Buddhist ritual and culture. You know everybody grows up around a temple, the kind of just the ritualized nature of life at a Buddhist temple would have a profound impact on you in some way or form. What's more intriguing is the umbilical cord. Now, in Japan, my wife, who's Japanese, has one as well, her mother has her kind of dried-up, prunish-looking umbilical cord in the back corner of a closet, kind of, you know, dusty in a dusty box. But, you know, up until the current day, it was usual for people to keep a, a part of that umbilical cord. And while it speaks of the life cycle and birth and death, it also speaks of connection. And I think, I don't know if Lee would agree with this, I think she would, that Chiharu's work, in some ways, is all about connecting with her own past, connecting with people outside of herself, connecting with the world in general. It's a way of her connecting, connecting with the world. And the umbilical cord, you know, this idea that we're tied to one person only, really, physically in our life. You know, throughout our life we'll have many f- emotional ties, some physical ties— uh, which are fleeting, but that one connection with one's mother is really the only time we're actually ever physically bound to somebody. And so that's why it's of such importance. And it carries all the DNA and the lineage of your family and so forth and so on. So this idea of connections is quite important in her work. There's one philosophy or motif or belief in East Asia that comes up again and again when you ha- hear about her work. It's called Akai Ito, which actually refers to this idea that around our forefinger, or a pointer finger, uh, everybody has a thread wound around it which connects to our destiny to a number of different people that are in, you know, close proximity to us in terms of relationships. And it's, you know, she's, she's often said that, that this is emblematic of her string practice as well because those threads, like relationships, can, can go taut, they can go slack, they can get entangled, they can become cut, they can become severed. So it's quite an elegant motif to describe what she's doing with string uh, in her string practice. And so after this honenji, uh, uh, she continues to create works of string uh, in Tokyo. She also works with a very important uh, artist known as Saburo Muroka, who was what's known as a post-monoha artist. Now, post-monoha artist, you may not know, but you probably all know our beautiful Endo Toshikatsu canoe, which is burnt and has water uh, in it. It was created about 1993, I believe. It's been in the, up on display a couple of times. And post-monoha artists were very famous in Japan from about the mid or early 80s up to the mid 90s. And Chiharu actually worked with one of those, Saburo Muroka, who transformed kind of base materials like metal. They, they used often metal, wood, transformed them by these kind of primeval effects such as fire, water. Often to, to connect with memories, but also to, uh, to go back in time and have a connection or... or uh, to have an experience which is pre-linguistic, which is something more primal, more earthly, um, and she—I see some of that in her work. And she worked with him for about two years on some major projects, and then she she went to Germany to study performance art, which I believe Lee will talk a bit more about.
1: Thank you, Rusty, um, for that for that segue, um, but yeah all all of those uh, those sort of combined uh, influences um are really you know really i guess uh, culminate in chiharu shiota's um practice which as rusty was saying freed itself from the constrictions of painting on the two-dimensional surface of painting and really started moving out into a physical realm. And she did this in a number of ways. Um, you know, when, when we're looking at Chiharu's practice and when we've been spending time with her, one of the things we've realized is that every single one of her works is really about her constant negotiation with um, the relationship between where her body ends and where the world begins. And um, and you can see that um, happening on a, on a num- number of levels, um, that uh, the the sort of enduring influence of Monaha affects one of her um, her first uh, performance works. I mean, her first um, works that she makes as a performance uh, that she that she then turns into a a, a photographic work. And after, obviously, um, we've created quite a few intimate spaces in here so that you can be at one with the work. But after this talk, um, if you're able to go into the side gallery there um, behind us, There is a a very important work that uh, Chiharu makes in 1997. After she's finished her studies at Kyoto Siki University, um, uh, she'd submitted her portfolio to Marina Abramovic to study at the Hochschule für Bildende Kunst in Hamburg in Germany and was successful. And uh, and so that, that saw her travel to travel to Hamburg to study with one of the the the, the most important and influential uh, performance artists of our time. Um, one of the one a part of that course involved all of the students, a very big mix of international students going to Brittany for a weekend performance workshop where you know the, the sort of limits of the body are tested um, and uh, that, uh, that required um, all of the students to fast for 24 hours and then unbeknownst to them in the middle of the night, Marina Bramovich would come up to them, wake them up, and, um, and tell them to write down a single word. Um, and in that sort of state of starvation and delirium and uh, total disorientation, uh, um, the word that they wrote down would, um, would be the impetus for a performance that they would have to make in a, um, the next day. Chiharu said she woke up, um, she was woken up abruptly, and um, the first word that came to her mind was Japan. Um, and so that that relationship to to home and um, and her connection to home and to her past um, looms quite large. Um, and so she makes a work, and it's uh, captured in six uh, docu- six still photographs of her excavating a sort of vertical hollow or a cave into into the side of um, into the side of a, a, a small. Uh, Mountain, a sort of cliffside, and um, she's sort of cate, She's naked. She's uh, caked in in soil, and you see her repeatedly trying to get inside this uh, this hollow, and um, and then you see her repeatedly rolling out, trying to get back in, rolling out in this sort of futile attempt. Um, and the work is called "Try and Go Home," and um, and so that 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 uh, you know experimentation of using her own body. To, to to test out these ideas, but also deal with the displacement that she felt and and the distance. You know, often there are all of these polarities that work uh, at are at work in Chiharu's practice from um, absence and presence, belonging, not belonging. Um, these uh, sort of negative and positive spaces, and um, and and also her you know disconnection um, from uh, to, to home. That. Then led to Chiharu Shioda's. Um, she went. She finished that um, that quite, uh, you know, visceral and again pivotal course with Marina Abramovic in Germany, and um, and really that that sort of began her her career as as an artist. It was something that she said she'd always knew she wanted to be from when she was 12 years old. That um, that you know, being being an artist was really the only the only pathway for her to to understand her place in the world. She went back to Berlin. She set up. She set up in Berlin, and um, and she made her first work for video, which is called "Bathroom" in 1999, and it connects both to becoming painting and that physical experience of not being able to, you know, wash the paint off her. Always finding it, you know, under her fingernails or in her paws or, you know, uh, in her hair and having to having to cut her hair off and that very. Um, uh, profound physical encounter, but also um, the connection back to the earth and one of the stories uh, as well that she often references in terms of her you know g- physically connecting to the earth and to memory and to her own um, her own history, her own autobiography was when she was a young girl. In rural rural Japan, visiting her grandmother's grave and and pulling out weeds next to her grandmother's grave and feeling that she was she said she she was she described it as being scared that she was actually going to pull her grandmother out of the ground with every tug of um of weeds from around the grave. So she felt, you know, that that for her was this very um uh, visceral connection with uh you know with the earth and with the past. Um, and so she she was negotiating that in, in a, again in a work which often chiharu's works are able to distill these very complex ideas in in very simple um, repetition uh, in simple repetitions and in video you see her in this very confined constricted space again she's sort of pushing against the the limits of her space in this filthy bathroom in a bathtub in in Berlin and she's pouring um, buckets of muddy water water over her head and then trying to wash herself clean in an impossible action with this um with the sullied water um and um and she said that you know these these performances keep recurring in her practice there's these attempts to become clean or that relationship to to um to the earth as um as as something that's enduring in her practice um maybe you want to pick up on on that
0: so one thing she, if you look around kind of the back, look around the walls of the back of you and to the left and right of you, you'll notice that there's, there's a series of drawings and lithographs, lithographs on the back wall. And you'll see that there's connections. She's, there's strings often connecting people, threads connecting people, peop, things growing out of people's abdomens. And there's a really, um, you know, this, this idea of drawing uh, she comes back to again and again and again. It's almost, I think Lee described it really well when she said it's almost as if it's her diary. There are almost these, almost these unfinished diaristic pages of her life. And when we were actually started the, the installation, Absence Embodied, the first thing that she began it with was a very simple drawing. Of a hand kind of suspended in a room with thread or string kind of fountain coming out of it like a fountain, which is actually sort of what was realized in the gallery uh, but it 's interesting that that drawing you know she has obviously sculpture she 's returned to, she does performance video, she does painting, which she recently returned to, she does lithographs. but drawing is this most intimate of practice, which I think really pervades these entire galleries. if you look all the way down to these photographs on the red wall. You can see that she's, it's after she's taking a bath, she's almost turning her hair into drawings. The, <clears throat> the, the vitrines with the dress as well as the, what I call a flugelhorn, although I've been corrected, I believe it's a tenor horn. This idea that they're captured in a web, but also almost this, this kind of maze of drawings. So drawing she returns to again and again and again and again. And it's an important aspect of her art, which actually nobody's really focused on before. And we thought it was really important to include a number of these drawings and recent lithographs to kind of connect those with. Something interesting that Lee was talking about was when she moved to Germany, this idea of travel and disrupting your kind of home life and your sense of yourself and your sense of stability. It's really beautifully articulated in these two suitcases uh, on either side of you with different instruments in it. If you look on the lids of the suitcases, they actually have two very naively but beautifully drawn figures, one of which is connected by a very small string, the other is kind of holding uh, what looks like almost the hands of justice. But inside of them is actually concrete. So this idea that you're, can, you know, you're, the bag that you're meant to travel with, tr- luggage often represents a kind of uh, a symbol of flight, of liberation. Is filled with concrete. It's weighed down with all these this, this stuff, this very heavy material. I always kind of envision this, that she's, one, solidifying her place in Germany, or two, that she feels like she has so much baggage she has to carry around with from place to place that she needed to represent it uh, in this fashion.
1: Yeah, well, I think um, that... uh Relationship to um, being being displaced. Mm-hmm. She also described that the suitcase for her was also a way of connecting with home. That she saw it as almost like a, a mobile um, a mobile home of sorts. And actually, over the years, she says that she is now able to travel with only nine objects um, in in her suitcases. So I guess in a true sort of economy of means, um, you know, she that's that's how she she moves around the world. But um, but suitcases and containment um, is, is something you can see that she reels between, um, between I guess, being sort of l- feeling lost or displaced in the world and then needing to contain herself or fix herself or tether herself to something or to someone. Um, or in some way find her place in the world, because she talks about these returning moments of anxiety, of feeling, you know, completely, you know, unsure of the boundaries between her body and the universe. And so a lot of the works are negotiating with that. And, um, and it's after um, the same time she starts working on these suitcases, um, she, she also starts... She said that um, she, she, was, she was working a lot with dresses. Um, There are recurring symbols in her work. She uses dresses, which she describes as a second skin that almost sort of keeps her safe as she moves through the world, Um, but also possessions such as suitcases or musical instruments um, that that have a sense of anonymity but um, a universal connection to them most of these objects have been used. The suitcases have been used, and she's found them. They're secondhand. Same for same as the the musical instruments. And um, and until recently, most of the dresses that she used in her installations were um, secondhand uh, uh, white dresses. Um, but she said that there was a certain point where she'd moved nine times. Um, in about uh, you know in as many years, and um, and she said that she w- the the point where she moved from her spatial installations with string um, to you know containing these works was that she said she she felt that she needed to start weaving around her objects. She needed to fix them in space because she had this sort of sense of. Uh, I guess um, yeah that, that she was sort of lost in lost in space or untethered, and so she starts sewing around her objects as a way of of fixing them, and that's when you see the works like um, State of Being, this incredible dress, almost like a disembodied marionette um, hovering hovering in the space, or the the, flute, uh, the, the tenor horn here, um, or then you see the the, the chairs or the um, the trumpet located in in concrete just as that's picked up again with that point of connection and the point and the line being the most important mm-hmm um r- uh, motif for her or device for her to both make a connection with the world but also to be able to contain and to tether things so so you'll see that in all of these um, new drawings that she that she made for the exhibition um, which in a way I guess are, are the the sort of autobiographical backdrop to the making of absence embodied the installation in the melrose wing but again you can you can see you can see the these figures or these feet or these bodies um Tethered to each other with that a ito, that um, that red string, and if you look up closely, um, these drawings they're they're rendered in um, watercolor, um, oil pastel. Ink and red thread, so she's actually sewing into the drawings, and so you see, you see, um, she makes visible that um, that connection, and that I guess brings us back to the um, you know the, the the exhibition and the title of the exhibition being embodied, and you know to embody is to make visible or vi- or um, tangible uh, an idea or a feeling. Um, and that seems to be something that Chiharu Shiota has, you know, consistently attempted in in her practice, which brings us to, um, you know, the, the works in this exhibition span from 1990, uh, 1994 with becoming painting through to um, works that she's completed this year. All of the, the 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 drawings, the works on paper, through to earlier lithographs and photogravure, um, to State of Being, which was um, made a few years ago through to these incredible bronze pieces, and I think this is where it brings back the connection of the line, the drawn line to the spatialized drawing or the line in space, and back to the hand. And if you have a look, there's um, uh, a work that's just shining in, um, uh, behind you, and it's called In the Hand. And you can see it's two very small hands that are um, uh, that are offering up this incredible sort of electric tangle of very fine brass threads. And it was the first work that she made after she represented Japan um, at the Venice Biennial, at the 56th Venice Biennial, which is like the Olympics of the art world, the sort of height of... Um, of uh, um of an artist's practice to be asked to represent their country, and she made a piece um, which was called uh, an installation for the Japanese pavilion called um, "The Key in the Hand," and it featured two large um, uh, weather-worn boats, and um, and they were sort of in, encased in a web of red threads and thousands of used keys. And historically, up until the last couple of last couple of years, actually, until she was working towards the installation for the gallery here, she's always used. Um, Objects uh, as metaphors for her body or the or the body. Mm-hmm. So the boats, she said, stand in for um, for hands, um, or and the um, you know the the suitcases stand in for sort of vessels or containers, and um, and keys stand in for that connection to you know with other spaces and universes and things like that. And um, and so it wasn't until after that that it's the first time that she started casting her own hands and also her family members' hands. And so that, um, uh, in the hand is actually a bronze cast of her daughter, who's about uh, 11 years old, her hands. Um, and then she made another piece, which is the centrepiece, I guess, in a way, where you come in, which is called Belonging. And you can see three hands entwined, her husband's, hers, and her daughter's, um, clutched together in in a single sort of um, work, which is called "Belonging," and uh, I guess in a way that sort of takes the the journey through both materially, conceptually, and perhaps spiritually in um, in Chiharu's practice to to this point. And then you know we invite you to to go and experience the the installation in Gallery 14, but. Do you have any other points to uh, the that are important th- to mention? I would
0: say is that you know we're she's on a spectacular trajectory. Um, obviously, Venice in 2015, this year the Art Gallery of South Australia in 2018, and then next she's going to be showing at the Mori Museum in downtown Tokyo, which is about 46 flights high, and is literally and metaphorically the height of the uh, artistic world. And so we're very lucky to have her here in such a profound fashion, um, obviously this exhibition, the installation absent embodied, and then the dresses on the front of the building, which will be back up shortly. They will
1: go back up. Uh, they, were, they were just uh,
0: The torrential but The, wind. the,
1: the gale-force winds <laughs> meant that uh, so we just wanted to take them down to protect to them, protect but they'll them. be going up in a, in a couple of days. Yeah.
0: So it's important to remember that while the installation may last for two to three years, this will only be here until uh, late October. And that there will be a a forthcoming publication on the installation, her career, um, in late, what, late September?
1: Uh, They'll hit the bookstores late October. Late October. Before the show closes. Before the show closes,
0: yep. yep. And in that is Captured the Installation, which is actually a first for the gallery. uh, We're actually really happy about. So please uh, enjoy the show and go see the installation and look out for the catalog and enjoy. Thank
1: you.